said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. And he said to them, Truly I say to you, there is no one who has left house or wife or brothers or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God, who will not receive many times as much at this time and in the age to come eternal life. Heavenly Father, thank you for this wonderful passage. Thank you, Lord, that there are things that we are going to study today that are that still eclipse my uh, feeble understanding. Thank you, Lord, for those things in the Word of God that uh, become the very hallmark and the fingerprint of the author being far above our intellect and our understanding and uh, the genius and, and some of the mysterious passages that we that we have to work at um, keep on bringing us to that remembrance of the fact that when we are hearing the word of God we are hearing the word of God and uh, there are some things that are expressed that eclipse our ability to to comprehend. Thank you, Lord, that there's coming a day where we will know even as we are known. And we look forward to that day. In the meantime, Lord, I would pray as Brother Ethan has prayed. First of all, would you cleanse me, wash me, and then, Lord, enable me and empower me to... Um, teach this word of God with accuracy and 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 yet Lord with uh, passion and with um, the kind of dedication that it, it should have in our lives and then Lord I, I would pray that um, having done that that you would give us ears to hear heart to receive and a will that would be bent to the will of our Father who's in heaven and we Ask all of these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. <clears throat> this could easily, this little passage, it could easily have kind of dangled in onto the tail of the uh, lesson that we had on the rich young ruler. In fact, it just fits right in there. It is an extension of that, dis of that discussion. And we could have easily done it, and I, and I was considering... Just because of the difficulty factor of this, just kind of throwing it in and going, yeah, and there's also these verses, and uh, not wanting to go into a lot of detail because, well, there's some tough detail here. But I thought, no, I, th I think we need to slow down and have a look at it. So we're studying the resultant discussion between Jesus and the disciples after the wonderful, encouraging inquiry of the rich young ruler and then the subsequent abandonment by that rich young ruler when Jesus said to them uh, it is easier verse 25 for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God they that heard it said then who can be saved and the other accounts of the gospels where this is included, say they were greatly astonished. They, they found that bewildering. And there's, of course, a context for that. In, 
In Jewish writings, for example, the Tobit, it says, quote, it is good to do alms, which is uh, giving, sacrificial giving, rather than to treasure up gold. And the reasoning they have, for alms deliver from death, and this will purge away every sin. That's part of what they were being taught. That's what they believed. You can purge away your sins if you give enough money. And of course, that is a continuing error that is being propagated today. If you have enough to give, you can purge all your sins away. So the rich gain the highest ground in the kingdom. For example, and it says again in the Sirach, it says alms will atone for sin. The Talmud says almsgiving is more excellent than all offerings and is equal to the whole law. Isn't that interesting? And will deliver from the condemnation of hell and make one perfectly righteous. Not the imputed righteousness of, of another, it, it is money. How did they think this could be? You can esteem, be esteemed by God to be perfectly righteous and escape, and escape hell if you give enough money. That's what they were being taught, so the rich, of course, can buy their way in. So what our Lord is saying totally contradicted this cultural national expectation. Everybody needs God to do something for them that is impossible for them to do for themselves. That's what Jesus was teaching in this passage. <clears throat> well, having done that, Peter, after a moment of reflection, says something. He says in verse 28, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. Now, I, I need to kind of point out something. If you're looking in your text, you will see the word homes as italicized, meaning that is something supplied. Literally in the Greek, it says, we have left ta idea. We left our own and followed you. The Legacy Standard Bible has it. Behold, we've left all that is our own. And that's a good, faithful following of it. We've left all that is our own and followed you. Both Matthew and Mark gives a similar treatment um, of the claim by Peter and Habit. We have left panta, everything, and followed you. And the term left, we've left everything, speaks of utter abandonment at a particular point in time. We did that which you have asked of the rich young ruler, he says. Was this pride? Self-deception? We've left everything. What did that even mean? Well, first of all, I want to kind of uh, thin out the, the bad doctrine that is so common. He did not mean, as some have asserted, that Peter left his wife or abandoned his wife. And you go... Who believes that? Who would teach that? The accepted view of the Roman Catholic Church on this issue is that Peter abandoned his wife to enter into ministry, as was, in their view, proper. <coughs> if you're going to be in ministry, you have to be single, is what they teach. And here they say, Peter has left his wife. Just see you later, girl. <coughs> but we find out as we go into... Let's turn for a moment to... 
rather than have it where we're speculating. 2 Corinthians chapter 9. Paul is talking about the various um, entitlements that he would have in the ministry. And he's basically coming from the point of view of, I have these entitlements, but I don't, I don't always use them. Um, and that is not the right verse that I had giving up for. Um, I'll just quote it from you. I forget where it is. It might be in 1 Corinthians chapter 9. Let's try that for a minute. For 2 Corinthians chapter 9 is also a very good verse, but it's not the one I'm looking for. Ah, there we go. <clears throat> That's it. Verse 9, uh, chapter 9, verse 1. Am I not free? Am I not an apostle? Have I not seen Jesus our Lord? Are you not my work in the Lord? If to others I am not an apostle, at least I am to you, for you are the seal of my apostleship in the Lord. My defense to those who examine me is this. Do we not have a right to eat and drink? Do we not have a right to take on a believing wife? Now get this. Even as the rest of the apostles... We might not have that in our head. In fact, as we picture the apostles going out and going to various places in the diaspora as they're being dispersed, we very well might have the idea that they were, you know, trucking it on alone. Not the case. Here Paul says, even as the rest of the apostles, the rest of the apostles took their wives along with them. <coughs> Pardon me. And the brothers of our Lord. So in other words, the half-brothers of our Lord, Jude and James, took along a wife wherever they went in ministry. Uh, and Cephas, in other words, there's Peter. Peter was very much married, and all through his ministering years, he took along a wife with him. So we, we need to kind of uh, immediately dismiss that sort of idea that he had abandoned his wife. What does it mean then that he said we have left all? Well, Peter had left his multi-boat, multi-family fishing business. And the, the big items that were mentioned that he left were his boats and the nets. The nets would have been of the bigger commercial value. <clears throat> and he began following Jesus. In a few weeks' time from the exchange that we're reading about today, he announces after the death, burial, and resurrection of Jesus that he is going with finality fishing. I'm, I'm going to quit and I'm, I'm going to go fishing the rest of my life. Um, and he does that because it was in light of his personal failure on the night of the arrest of Jesus. I'm going with finality fishing. And apparently there's a boat and even more expensive net, uh, an ex expensive asset that is at quick access on that occasion. But as he spoke with the Lord, he had left his day-by-day -day fishing business. And, of course, another fishing entrepreneurial concern would have filled that void, um, that market. And he was no longer living under his own, own roof, his home in Capernaum. <clears throat> but without abandoning his family, 
Notice that Jesus does not rebuke him for his statement and say, here, you, you, you claim that you have left everything. What an arrogant, self-deluded, or exaggerated claim. Jesus doesn't correct that. <clears throat> now, this particular exchange is recorded in all three Gospels. And if we were to flip to Matthew chapter 19, it records there the fuller exchange. Matthew adds a question to the statement. We've left everything to follow you. And then a statement or a question. What then will there be for us? What then will there be for us? And there's an immediate little thing where that might kind of grate against us. We've left everything, so what's the reward? And we might go, man, what a terrible attitude. Again, Jesus doesn't rebuke him for inquiring after some sort of reward. In fact, why would Peter be sort of hinting at a reward beyond deliverance from hell anyway? Well, before we conclude today, I'll maybe give you a bit of a suggestion. Anyway, let's go to Matthew chapter 19 for a little bit, to that fuller conversation, record of fuller conversation on this occasion. <clears throat> So verse 27, Peter said to him, Behold, we've left everything and followed you. What then will be there for us? And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. And everyone who's left houses or brothers or sisters or farms, or mother or children or farms, uh, for my sake will receive many times as much and will inherit eternal life. But many who are first will be last and the last first. In the response of Jesus, as we consider the narrative of all three Gospels, we see that there are three lines, or maybe better, three time frames of compensation of reward other than just having someone very kindly putting a glass of cold water in your hand, which scripture says has a reward. Thank you. <laughs> so there are three time frames of compensation or reward promised by our Savior. In this life, number one. Number two, in the millennial kingdom. Number three, in eternity. You say, can you maintain those distinctions? Oh yes, we can. And we'll look at them today. But today, let's look at that and we'll maybe start at the bottom and work our way up. He says in all three of the Gospels, you will have this and this and this, and in the eternal age, that is in the eternity future, eternal life. If we could understand a particle of this, and if we really believe this, this would be where we are full and content. We're done. You mean that 
If by following Christ we have eternity in heaven, if we had any kind of a concept of what that was, and any kind of a notion of what eternity was, and we say that's in the deal, we'd say the deal is done. They're like, this is pretty easy. <clears throat> or put another way, anyone who would sell his inheritance for a bowl of chili doesn't really believe in the inheritance, not really. Anyone who sells his savior for 30 pieces of silver doesn't believe he is the savior. Paul says our momentary light affliction is not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. If we trust that our Lord is honest, accurate, and generous of nature more than we trust our own intuition that is more than enough incentive right there <clears throat> if the opposite if we consider this a little further of what we are being promised eternal life if the opposite of that and it is is eternal death in the lake of fire one of the two Anyone who gave a whiff of thought understands the bargain that's before them. If you look at the cost-benefit analysis, you'd look at that and go, this one's not tough. People who really believe what God has clearly written run to a Savior. They really believe it. Well, Peter surely knew the outcome of being a disciple of Jesus was eternal life. Not intuitively, but because he was taught Jesus said in John chapter 10, for example, that he gives his sheep, one of the things he gives is eternal life, and they shall never perish. But here, Peter seems to be expecting that there might be more than just eternity, as grand as that is. Why? One of the possible reasons is that in coming to know Jesus, he has come to know the Father a little better, and therefore he knows of the extraordinary generosity of our Father in heaven. And he's sort of betting on it, and he's not far off. So the first one, the first category of the outcome of leaving everything, as he's talked about so many times in the Word of God, eternal life, salvation. The alternative of that is, it, it's eternity, but it's not in heaven. It's in the fires of hell. So, second category, <clears throat> Matthew chapter 19, verse 28. Truly I say to you that you who have followed me in the regeneration, when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon 12 thrones, judging the 12 tribes of Israel. And the one, grammatically, is the instantaneous, instantaneous uh, subsequent action of the first. Meaning, as soon as he sits on the throne, immediately they are seated on 12 thrones. If that is Jesus in heaven, 
It would require the immediate death of all the apostles and them sitting on 12 thrones up there. Okay? So, um, if there is any kind of a time lag at all, this coming into the regeneration uh, has to be immediately accompanied by the all 12 sitting on 12 thrones judging the nation of Israel. Well, before we go further, what does it mean to act as a judge? Well, I could ask the question, well, what does it mean to you? If somebody said, you are going to be the judge, I could ask the question, and would, you know, then we could dialogue and whatnot. What does it mean to judge? And you'd think, well, some of you might have the idea of the auspicious British judge, and you got the funny thing on your head and the funny black thing, and you know, and, and you got your gavel, which is kind of fun. You can kind of bang that a bit. And and that's what being a judge is. Well, say with a lofty tone, I in my opinion, this is, you know, whatever. And 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 that may well be exactly what you're picturing in your head. And let me just say with the greatest amount of humility, wrong. Because what's going on in your head is irrelevant um, if it isn't biblically aligned. Okay? What does it mean in Scripture? What does it mean in Scripture to be a judge? What does it that mean in the history of Israel? Well, governing the activity of protecting, guiding, and militarily defending. You've got a book in your Bible called The Judges, right? Who were the judges? Well, they, the, the end of the judges was uh, a guy by the name of Samuel, who, in addition to being a judge, was also uh, a priest. What does it mean to be a judge? Would, did they sit in you know, a funny oak thing here and bang their gavel? Uh, is, is, is that what all of the judges did? They were governing the activity. They became a leader. Governing the activity of whatever area they were assigned. They were supposed to be protecting and guiding and militarily defending. In times of political unrest and military attack, it was to marshal the for, for, forces, organize, mount, and lead the resistance. That's what was built into being a judge. In times of peace, it was to arbitrate conflicts that were occurring just locally, to establish justice, policy internally, and to govern and direct the activities of whatever realm that judge was acting in. Having said all that, turn with me, if you would, to 1 Corinthians chapter 6. Paul is scolding the people in Corinth for their willingness to allow disagreements within the body of Christ between believers to be invigilated, pondered over, and, and a sentence given by unsaved judges. And, he, and he's saying, how... how outrageous that is does any one of you verse 1 when he has a case against his neighbor dare to go to law 
before the unrighteous and not before the saints. Why would you do that? Why would you grant them, delegate them the authority to do that? Or do you not know that the saints will judge the world? What? If the world is judged by you, are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts? Do you not know that we will judge angels? Now, how does that fit? Where you're sitting in your funny little seat with your funny little thing on your head and your funny robe and banging your gavel and your, and your what? Bringing in angels and going guilty, not guilty? I find you 50 bucks like... Obviously, that picture is wrong. But what is it saying? There is coming a day for believers who have been renewed. They have their resurrection bodies. They now have the wisdom and the mind of Christ fully. Do you know that they are going to be directing, guiding, and organizing the activity of angels that's what this is saying have you ever given any thought to that in your future as a believer what an astonishing thought have you thought that one day you would be engaging in this task Paul knowing this says do you realize how outrageous it is to be delegating that to people who have an unredeemed mind. Why would you do that? Believers directing the activities of angels. This eventuality may well be one of the factors in the rebellion of Lucifer and subsequently his abiding hatred of mankind. Anyway, going back to Matthew chapter 19. In the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit in his glorious throne, you shall also sit upon twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Now I hope you understand what that's better going on. They're going to be judging, they're going to be directing the activities of live Israelites. Live Israelites. Now we need to address to ourselves what is this bit about the regeneration, the regeneration. Evidently, as we've mentioned here, there are three categories, timeline, there is eternity, there is the here and now, and this is the, the thing that we keep on seeing as we go through, for example, the book of Isaiah, a third reality. The regeneration, it's not the eternal state, the 12 will have this added responsibility and privilege. If you are hazy as to what regeneration refers to, would you please join the rest of us and listen in, perhaps, as I'm teaching through the next few chapters of Isaiah. As Isaiah, in great detail, with a, a bounty of detail, describes this very thing, the regeneration. The last few chapters of Isaiah are dedicated to this task, and we're going to be rolling through it in the months to come. It describes a time, and it is not as things are now, because the Messiah, Jesus, is physically present 
on earth, never again being slandered or mocked, ruling directly over an earth whose entire ecosystem he has recently overhauled. It is not the eternal state because many of the inhabitants during this time are having kids, being judged, being punished, and even dying. It's the third category, the second phase of the kingdom. Will all of us take a turn on the 12 thrones judging? Nope. Among the many activities that are recommended during the, this period of time, some sort of a chaotic um, game of, uh, what's that called? Musical chairs. Yeah. Musical chairs. Musical chairs. That's not one going to be one of the things. <laughs> they will sit on 12 thrones and they will be guiding the activities of during this earthly phase where Israel is being elevated and they are going to be the directors of that. So that was the second one. There's going to be rewards specifically for apostles, not for the rest of us during this that particular time. So eternity, we have now the regeneration, and now as we work our way backwards up the list, the last category, things that are to be expected in this life, in this life. Let's go back, he says, and everyone, he says, verse 29, everyone, which then puts it past just the 12, because believe me, if there was a way that I could wiggle out from what is being said here and go, oh, so this just applies to the 12 in, in some way that we don't comprehend, I'd have, I'd have jumped at that. But that's not what it's saying. It says to everyone who has left houses or brothers or sisters or fathers or mothers or children or farms for my namesake will receive many times as much Mark says a hundred times as much, shiver me timbers, and will inherit eternal life. That's the third category. But many who are first will be last and the last first. But before we go there and we're going, yeah, but I don't know what that verse means. If you're watching a race and they come across the line and the one who is last is also matched by the one that is first, what is it? It's a dead heat. Everyone finished together. And that's the point. In heaven, everyone will be an equal participant and enjoying the glories of heaven. There's not going to be a distinction where there's some sort of a some sort of a different hierarchy in heaven. Believers are believers and they all enjoy the bounty of heaven. Well here it is, Jesus mentions leaving physical assets and relationships of the closest order for the kingdom of heaven or for the gospel. Mark 10.29 includes the mention of farms left for the sake of Jesus and the sake of the gospel. Again, it's very clear in this that the sake of the kingdom, the sake of the gospel, the sake of our Lord are all being treated synonymously for the sake of Jesus, for the sake of the gospel. And then in, in Mark it says a hundred times as much. 
And all of us look at that and go, wow. Every believer is supposed to have a hundred times as much. And so, theoretically, a husband-wife team could have 200 farms to do a weed program on. Well, think of the sprayers you need for that. So just let's do a little bit of a sketch, because, you know, I'm a pastor, and I don't necessarily understand everything that's going on in the congregation. So, I, you know, I need a little bit of an upgrade here. How many of you have, let's say, four homes or six farms here today? None of you. Well, that's what the scripture, the scripture says there's hundred times. What is, what in the world is going on? Well, I don't know anybody who has six homes. I don't personally know anybody like that. I don't personally know anyone who has six farms, never mind a hundred. And I don't know of any husband-wife team who owns 200 farms because Farmed is is guarded by the context in which it's described, and so you can't say, well, it, it's it's a farm in Luxembourg. No, it, it farms is farms. So what's going on here? Well, there's been a number of suggestions. Jesus here is exaggerating to get our attention. Is that a possibility? Verse 28, truly I say to you, amen, amen. I'm saying this and I and I mean it with sincerity and honesty of the highest order. So big old nope. So what is he saying here? When he says homes, farms, parents, siblings, what he really means is these are code words for Beatings, Brussels sprouts, and broccoli. Is that possible? No, the word of God and the words chosen are carefully chosen and they mean what they mean. Well, let's try and do a little reasoning our way through. For everyone in the room this morning that are really genuinely disciples of Jesus, your response to the gospel and your response to Jesus cost you something. I know that because that is declared in scripture as one of the unifying factors of being a believer. It did cost you something. And if you say, no, the brand of Christianity I have never cost me anything, really. Um, maybe take some focus on the first part of that sentence, the brand of Christianity you have. Jesus said, in order to come to Christ, it will cost you something. And ministry will cost you something. Ain't no cakewalk. I remember hearing early on in my years of ministry, I was uh, speaking with a guy who basically started out ministry at the same time I did. And about eight years in, I was sitting across the coffee table from him and he said, I had no idea what ministry would cost. He said, if I had any idea, I'd never tried. He said, it's just not worth it. And I was, of course, dumbfounded by it. And as I gave it some more thought, I said, just not worth it. What's the problem here? Obviously, he has lost vision of or never really believed in Henceforth, there's laid up for me a crown of righteousness 
and not for me only, but for all those who love his appearing, there is something in his head that didn't really believe God's word. That was the problem. Anyway, if you came to Christ, it cost you something. For some, there, there were some things that were very financially measurable. How is it that you now have an anticipation of 100 times what you left? Well, I'm going to make a very uncomfortable admission. Two years ago, when I scooted ahead to look at this, I thought, that's a tough passage, actually. That's a little tougher than I thought. I'm going to need to really apply myself to try and figure out what that is. And here and there, and as we went, I, I, I did. I, I kept it, and tell you what, this last week, it was almost in panic mode. What is he saying here? A hundred times what you left over. Here's my uncomfortable admission. I don't know. I should be able to tell you, but I don't know. I don't want you to be okay with me or anyone else reading what is written clearly and then giving you a meaning that does not do justice to what Jesus plainly says. So with a heavy heart, I tell you, I don't know. I don't know any believer that has a hundred homes. You could say, but but now as believers, we could be welcome into a hundred homes now. And that's probably true. But the phraseology is receive labane, or pardon me, labe, to take hold of, obtain houses, farms. Was this a promise directed specifically to the 12? Well, Mark 10 and this passage says, no one who's gone through this. <clears throat> and it's now, in this present age, not heaven. So it's not where we can say, we're in this present age, we have all those houses, but they're up in heaven, and we have to wait. He's saying, in this present age, the houses exist. That is actually... The, the grammar. Could we say houses represent places to live, places to stay at, open for us to stay at? We, we could, but that isn't really what the text says. Could we say with the term farms, we mean sources of provision. For those that are faithful to take some of their goods and use it as seed to finance the gospel, one of the baseline promises Paul promises is support at a standard of God's choosing. Let's look at the passage. Uh, that one is 2 Corinthians 9. I hope I got that one right. Second Corinthians chapter 9. Let's start in verse 6. Now I say... He who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. He who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must do just as he's purposed in his heart, not grudgingly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. What's he talking about? Well, this isn't something that happens with, with uh, 
the seed drill. This is something that happens with giving, and he refers to it wonderfully as a situation of seeding. And he says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you. In other words, he is able to do all kinds of provision in your life so that always having all sufficiency in everything. Hold the phone. What did Paul say? Having all sufficiency in everything. He's saying that people who um, sacrificially use their own resources for the furtherance of the kingdom, he's saying here that those people are going to have the ability to maintain themselves and their family at a standard of living of God's choosing. But they will have what is sufficient, what God says is sufficient for them. And it says, and you may have an abundance for every good deed. In other words, that in addition to that, you're going to have some extra coming in that you are expected to put into the seed bag and, and keep on throwing. And you're going to be able to do all kinds of bigger things in terms of providing for needs in people's lives in the body of Christ just because you're being faithful with what God has given you. As it is written, he scattered abroad, he gave to the poor, his righteousness endures forever. Now he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing. In other words, if you, if you are being faithful with what God gives you, you have every expectation that he's going to put more in your hand because you're being faithful, as long as you don't all of a sudden go, Yeehaw, bigger standard of living, here we come. If, if you're faithful with that, you go, Hi, here's the standard, we're going to stay there. and we're, An excess is not going to change our standard of living, it's going to change our standard of giving. He says, he will multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in everything for all liberality, meaning you're going to be enabled to be generous toward other people. Through which through us is producing thanksgiving to God. You say, well, there, there it is. There, No. That is true. What he just wrote is true. But I don't believe that that is specifically what this verse is saying. This verse is saying receiving, obtaining farms, obtaining homes. And it's not the same thing. Is it reasonable of you to expect that I would teach and explain this passage to you? Yes, it is. And so I will say with humility when I get it figured out so that I can explain what Jesus is saying rather than trying to explain it away, I'll try and get back to you. Well, the last little bit he says, for example, our passage in Matthew, he adds, he'll give all of these things with persecutions. That one I could get. That one I could explain. We are predestined to be persecuted. And that is a family rite of passage. It is something that when we gather our feet together around the table, which is the marriage supper of the Lamb, that will be something that will be common in the experience of every blood but believer. It's a family rite of passage. Embrace it rather than try to sidestep it when it occurs in your life. 
don't try and avoid all of the circumstances in which you could be persecuted. Um, matter of fact, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 5, when that happens to you, rejoice. Why? Because your sons and daughters are the most high God. Well, now I'm going to try my hand at exegeting the rest of the sentence. He says, those who have walked away from, left, brothers, sisters, fathers, mothers, <coughs> some cases, wives, spouses, there are people who embrace the gospel, and, and, and the, the world out there is saying, oh, come to Christ, and it'll, it'll, it'll improve your marriage. No. There are many through history who have embraced Jesus Christ and their unbelieving spouse has made life horrible for them for a little while and then they departed. There are some in this room that when they embraced the gospel and chose to follow Jesus, they lost the relationship that they had with their parents. Some of you, as I talk about that, you, you recognize that immediately. You know what I'm talking about. For some of you, in truth, the relationship you had with your parents was never really that good. But you hoped. And for some, it will never be that good as far as you can anticipate. Because some doors you can sense a very big door in your life slowly shut and there was a click but here's the deal in Christ within this wonderful thing called the church some of you found multiple surrogate parental figures people in your life now that really would provide for you. People in your life who would sacrifice for you and stop and patiently teach you about the things of the world, things that your real parents never would. People who would teach you about life, about raising children, about marriage, about holiness, about what the Bible actually teaches. And, and people God has somehow put these people into your life that actually their teaching far eclipses anything of parental care and concern that you left behind. In Christ, you were baptized into a body of many folks who, if you're walking with the Lord, are now much closer and much more trustworthy than any former sibling or cousin that you left behind would be as you embraced Jesus. Now, perhaps looking back, <coughs> who would you feel better about babysitting your children or giving you relationship or workplace advice? your natural family, or the body of Christ? Who is there in this world 
who's more excited than you are about your own baptism? Is it in your family? Who is praying for and cheering on your growth of holiness? Where are you going to find advice that's not world-contaminated, sinful, selfish reasoning? It's in the body of Christ. It's in the family church of Jesus Christ. So here's my first little point. As we begin a new year, stop and look around you, look about you, and begin to understand what God is doing for you and is further intending to do for you in knitting you into a church family. For some, they walk into a church experience, kind of like what is here, and they go, whoa, I, I don't know if I like that. It, it, it's uh, culturally a little different than what I expected. Some of these guys are just a little over the top. Yeah. Now, I'm watching very carefully as some of you kind of chuckle and look in a particular direction. I'm getting all kinds of signals <laughs> at this point. That's very helpful. I appreciate that. But anyway, for some of you, this whole thing about operating in the family of God is a bit new. And once in a while, it strikes them that this bit of other people speaking into my life and praying for me and coaching me and encouraging me and wanting to know about me and, and loving me and sometimes correcting me is a bit close and intense sometimes, huh? That wasn't what you were raised with. But here's the deal. Believers following the commands of the Lord toward the one another's. Believers following the commands of the Lord toward each other yields that kind of a culture. It yields the culture of a very invested, loving family. That's what's supposed to happen. And the closer a church has an absolute determination we're going to be doing the one another's. We're going to be replicating all of the things that are told we should be doing in a New Testament church. It gets to be feeling like a family. Right on. That's what it's intended to do. That was what it was always intended to do. There were people in the first century. The same, like some of you. They embraced Christ. Now they're not going to get the family business. Now they're not going to get the family fun. Now they're not going to get the invitation at any of the family get-togethers. They are cut off. But in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ, they would come in and somebody would embrace them like they were family. Because they were. Somebody would call them a brother or a sister because... It was different. They were now closer than a brother or sister. And so people who very frequently were hurting because of what Christ cost them found something different in the church of Jesus Christ if they would walk in and participate. Oh, first, if you would first be connected to the Lord Jesus Christ, 
having been regenerated, born from above. Yeah, for some of you, that wasn't what you were raised with, but believers following the commands of the Lord, it produces this kind of a culture. I would respectfully encourage you, don't straight-arm it or hold yourself aloof from it. There are opportunities where you can go and you can fellowship closely with believers where they'll hear your prayer requests, you will hear them, you pray for each other, and, and there, are, there are knittings together with people. And for you to grow up means that you're participating in that, and it means for you to grow up is that you grow to be that way toward others in the family as well, rather than just be the forever consumer. So, as you grow in Christ, don't spend much time sorrowing for what you lost in your upbringing. Delight in and praise God that he has provided to replace what vacancies and holes were left. And that was designed from eternity past. And very often, the very fact that that you felt the absence of family um, or that you felt the rejection of family is really a setup where God prepares your heart for a relationship with him and a family of Christ. Will there be difficulties and sorrows? Of course. He told us that multiple times. We will continue to suffer persecution for the sake of Christ. Yeah, he told that to the folks in, in Thessalonica. Paul told that to Timothy. All who will live godly lives, all who will live godly lives in Christ Jesus, will suffer persecution. Matthew chapter five. He says again, when that happens, not if. When that happens, rejoice. Great is your reward in heaven. Oh, and by the way. It, it dignifies you and it identifies you as a son or daughter of the Most High God. And <clears throat> our present sufferings, our present difficulties, Romans chapter 8, are not worthy to be compared with the glory that will be revealed in us. There is a good informed cost-benefit analysis. So in glory... Obviously, that one's easy. But for now, you have difficulty, you have trials, you have rejection. <clears throat> but for now, you go through this with a great, big, wonderful family of other fellow sinners who have now been redeemed. And that's what is as intended. Let's go back to our original passage in Matthew chapter 18. Peter said, Behold, we have left our own homes and followed you. What does that mean? Well, same thing he's talked about all along. If you have a first loyalty toward your stuff above obedience to Jesus Christ, you're not worthy to be one of his. He says, In order to be a disciple of Christ, 
you need to put away from you even to your own disadvantage, it says, your stuff. Better that you understand whose stuff all your stuff really belongs to. A believer just really comes into where he understands biblical theology. My days, they're not my days. They're ones that are given to me by Lord. The stuff that I have that I can pull out of my bank account, that I can drive off my driveway, that's not really my stuff. And God can't take it back any moment he chooses. It belongs to the Lord. A believer just starts to understand the world as it really is. Well, for Peter, there was a time, an event in time, of the yielding of his will and the reallocating of all of his assets, resources, and entitlements. Jesus said, follow me, command. And he left his business, he left his stuff, and he goes, first loyalty, there. And God will be calling every one of you to that as well. Did he do that perfectly the rest of his life? No. He needed to be frequently renewed to that moment of the will. But he had of his own um, his own word and actually the the, um, the Lord reinforces that he had embraced the Lord as his master, the master of his stuff, the master of his life goals, the master of his life efforts. Jesus is Lord. The rich young ruler took a look at the ledger. I got to give away all my stuff. I, I give away the autonomous functioning of my stuff and I say, now God's going to call the shots. He looked at that ledger and he retreated in sorrow. He was sad. But his heart, his will, the object of his first loyalty was unchanged and unbowed. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> I want to point out something. That rich young ruler has now been dead for over 2,000 years. What has become of what he could not let go of? What has become of what he would not let go of? How would he view the cost-benefit ledger today from the vantage point of the torment of flame? Fast forward your situation. So what about you today? Is there a mere bowl of red chili that you are content with that will quickly mean nothing as you reject and abandon the stern but clear demands on your loyalty in order to have a relationship with this God? and with an eternal life. Whatever it is, it's not worth it. <clears throat> Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for
this passage that outlines for us the utter foolishness of valuing anything higher than a relationship with God, whereby we have access to eternity with you. Heavenly Father, if there are some here today that are considering a relationship with you, but nevertheless are still wanting to retain their own liberty, are still wanting to retain their own rights, are still wanting to retain the autonomous use of their assets, Lord, I would pray today that they would see the utter foolishness of that in light of eternity. For those, Lord, who have come to faith in Christ the first time and done so by a frank and a correct look at the cost-benefit analysis and, and nevertheless chose Christ, I would pray for all of us that you'd help us daily to renew that get up in the morning, die to self, and say you're the master, and we're delighted to have it that way. And I would pray that for all who have left some things and, and there's still an ache, I would pray today that they would have their hearts salved by the reality that it was always the intention of the Lord that within the body of Christ, functioning as a living, loving family, that loss would be more than replaced. And Lord, I would pray that you'd help them to go into this next year with great joy and thankfulness to our God who provides. And we ask these things in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. I'll call our music, folks. Amen.